Welcome back to Ether Hour, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalugin, and we're coming at you here with another great episode. We're doing something a little different today. We're kind of going to be taking a step back, having a bit of a meta conversation about the state of World War III, the state of kind of a lot of ideas that we talk about, monarchism, stepping back, having a bit of, I guess you could say, a more casual conversation. These are the sorts of conversations we have, you know. If we haven't talked in a few days since an episode, we'll call each other up, you know, start talking about things. And next thing you know, we'll be sort of doing our own episode a little more off the cuff, a little more all over the place. But we thought we'd record one of these. I've been meaning to do one of these for a while now, and we're going to be... We've got some big Ether Hours coming up in the future as we're reading some books, doing some research, talking to some potential guests. So I think this would be also a good place to leave in the comments, you know, any potential guests you'd want us to talk to, any ideas you have. For the show and things like that, you paid subscribers are what keep it all going, so don't be afraid to leave a comment. We always want to read those, but with all of that, Dimitri, how are you doing this fine evening? Yeah, I'm doing great, Conrad, and I hope our listeners are doing well, you know, as well. You know, just taking it taking it easy and not following too much news, but, you know, just enough in order to be aware of what's happening around the world, and I guess in their own local countries, uh, domains, their local towns, because it's... You know, one of the big messages, right, is that you have to have some awareness of where exactly the world is going culturally and like socially. You have to be aware of what the trends of the times are, but not to fall under their influence, which is, you know, that's a quote of the famous saint, I believe, uh, Saint Ignatius Brinchinilov. But again, there's also that understanding of exactly what's happening in your local area, your local parish, your local diocese, for example, or just your local town in order to not, you know, kind of in a way, use world politics in order to distract yourself from what's happening right under your nose. In a way, it's almost like it's almost like a geopolitical illusion of sorts. But nevertheless, we're here to talk about some really big picture things, especially given, you know, in light of the last year and a half, a lot has occurred even in 2023. It's almost like, I mean, hard to say, but the middle of 2022 was almost uh, uneventful, you know, in comparison to what's happening just, I guess, since uh, the beginning of this year. So, yeah, things have you know escalated quite significantly, and the world is taking a certain shape, especially in this uh, second decade of the 21st century. And I, I suppose it's still, it's pretty clear what kind of shape that will be. I mean, we we see a strong Israel in the Middle East, we see a rising China, we see Russia as well trying to get up off its feet, off its knees, essentially that it's been on for about a hundred years, and a lot of turmoil in the United States. Let's just not forget that. So the richest economy on earth is uh, shaking, and uh, or you know just sort of the shakes will cause tremors around the world as well. It's sort of like the movement of tectonic plates of sorts. So uh, here we are kind of discussing this with you, Conrad. So I guess let's break it down. And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of various issues around the world. And it's you can almost say like the clash of civilizations uh, itself is occurring before our very eyes. I think it's a pretty good place in time for us to do this, have this kind of step back meta conversation, a bit of a checkpoint on the World War Now journey. You know, we're getting close to one year of World War Now and we're kind of at this point where, you know, Trump has been arrested and we're seeing the fallout of that, but we still haven't quite ramped up into full on like 24-7 coverage election season stuff. And it's kind of similar in Ukraine, right? We're seeing, we're kind of, we expect almost September to be when we start to see the shape of this next push and everything, what's going to happen there to come. And we're, we're able to kind of take a step back, take a whole look at the conflict, what's going on, how other hot conflicts around the world have bounced off of it maybe some that preceded it that have become less relevant because of it. And I think maybe at some point in the talk we'll reference, I made this map, I think it was all the way back in maybe 2020, 2021, where I assigned, you know, six different colors, the two main ones being sort of the BRICS, you know, multipolar block as opposed to the NATO Anglosphere block. And I assigned each country a sort of 
designation in a hypothetical World War III hot scenario. So maybe we'll break some of that down. I may link the image in the show notes below on YouTube and on Substack, so check that out. But yeah, I think this is a good place in time here in the middle of 2023, end of the summer, to kind of break everything down, have a broader conversation, and give you guys a look at kind of how we just talk about things a little more casually behind the scenes. But Dimitri, what do you kind of think is... You know, when we started the show, what has kind of surprised you in the world since everything, you know, what hasn't surprised you? Have you, did you think that we, are we more or less vindicated than you thought we'd be around this time? Like, what are you, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. I almost predicted that, you know, in a way there was two positions. There was that, well, the conflict was going to die down and it was going to de-escalate very suddenly, almost like a into Minsk free, for example, what happened in 2014. And that really occurred before our very eyes where we were sort of like, witnesses of it we had family essentially from those regions so we could kind of tell how it was going to de-escalate and that was an example which um i mean we kind of witnessed it for ourselves and that's not what occurred last year and that's not what's happening now in any way and also that's not how other countries are also interpreting it we see countries like like turkey we see uh, countries from asia they're all watching with very with a lot of attention learning from this and in many ways africa is you can say the first place where this conflict has kind of spilled over and they've used it as as I suppose fuel in a way like um the Ukrainian Russian war you can say the SMO that it's been used as a sort of um uh, as an excuse to almost uh, rid themselves of this you know act you know you can say the NATO one world alliance like they're really naming and even the Wagner flags and the Russian flags they're using what's happening in Europe as a certain like it's almost they're bringing world war the world war to Africa in order to free themselves from the, the dominion of the white man or whatever they want to call it right it turns out it, that dominion is not exactly of the white man but maybe of people of different certain different ethnicity and perhaps <laughs> that have lived in Europe and have ruled over Europeans and even uh, white Americans and those of North American origin are uh, for a very long time. But the Africans have definitely felt that dominion over them and they've taken the world war and brought it to their own continent first and foremost by trying to, you know, rid themselves of these, uh, these, these NATO EU chains. And, uh, you know, I kind of didn't expect that to occur, frankly. I, I was a bit more pessimistic. I initially thought, well, this, this conflict would maybe grow, grow on to affect a lot more Orthodox countries, but it, it is, and it wouldn't really strike far beyond that, you know, frankly, not, not go beyond, say, countries like Georgia, Russia, maybe even Serbia and Kosovo. That was the, but in fact, uh, it's it seems that a lot of these countries are actually turning on on these uh, NATO globalist um, globalist powers around the world. Like this, they're seeing this as an opportunity to break free of, you know, any sort of globalist influence. The, f the thing is, and I think that's scary, is the fact that multipolarity in and of itself does provide each one of these massive civilizational countries, this, even the members of the, the new BRICS, even the updated BRICS, a sort of personal individual independence where they could seek out their own sovereign interests in their own local regions, locales. Like Egypt definitely has different goals about what they want to do to, I guess, the Middle East or their particular territory surrounding Egypt than, say, for example, uh, Ethiopia, or even Iran these days, or even China, right? There's huge prospects for each one of these huge multipolar sort of, sort of like civilization states. And and I think that's kind of where we, that, that's kind of where this breaks kind of free from our typical world, vision of the world. And in many ways, maybe it's similar to World War II, where we had the Soviet Union, which had a very singular vision of what the world should look like after victory over Nazi Germany, and how the other Western European states saw the world, where they would push the world towards liberal democracy. It's almost like these two big powers needed to align in order to defeat, say, a th the third position powers. 
in Europe. In in, in similar way, we have here we have here and like this example of these various civilizations who have completely different goals, completely different ideologies, and even religions. We see religion come up, and yeah, and that's kind of uh, it's it's really growing into that, and we see that rhetorically as well. China, of course, has really become really cold towards the United States. Um, very typically, the, the rhetoric in China is very anti-American. India is a bit very cautious, still kind of uh, juggling between itself, you know, the various powers around it. And yeah, I think that's kind of what we're looking at, this uh, massive, you know, in a way, this massive uh, sort of slow, slow burn escalation where the entire world is becoming free, unshackled, and we're going to see a lot of chaos soon. And it won't be structured. That's the that's the other thing, Conrad. This multipolarity won't bring around this one-world structure, which we've looked at since the Second World War. It'll be, it'll be a bit more wild. Well, I wanna, I, there's a few things I want to get into. A lot of ideas from that. I think the one thing, like I think, in many ways, you can compare it to like a reverse World War One, where you know, in World War One, you kind of had the Anshin regime and its representation. You know, it, it was both World War One and the civil wars within the countries at the time. Of course, Russia, the Austro-Hungarian Empire you know, the German Empire, these are kind of the representations of the older world, you know, of the, you know, the conservative monarchical establishment on the continent, as opposed to the more modern liberalizing enlightenment states. And now we're kind of seeing the reverse of that, where countries that hold on to custom culture and tradition, you know, their ethnicity and whatnot, and may even, as we see, we'll talk about this maybe a bit later, emerge again as monarchical states, they're kind of fighting back against those ascendant powers that did ultimately win the First World War. You know, here we are a hundred years later. And I think you named a lot of the conflicts with Africa kind of being the most obviously hot one. And I want to almost break, I think I realized you could kind of pair all these major hot conflicts and even conflict zones into kind of two types. Well, not, not two types, pair them into types of two. Being, I think Africa being a, a similar to South America in the sense that it's these countries that have always been direct colonial and well you know multipolar proxies because they've been entirely shaped under the prospect of decolonization and you know drawing up the map and you know the cold war with you know each block in the west or the soviets trying to vie for influence with a puppet government and everything so these countries have kind of there's almost no pretext of independence anyway it's just which influence do you take which will help which which values align i think those especially you know we see in Niger and everywhere, there's, I mean, the only country that you could really say is so kind of entrenched is, you know, Ethiopia, which historically was really never colonized. They had their own emperor for hundreds and hundreds of years. They have, you know, state Christianity. It's kind of the only civilization. I mean, there's, of course, the formerly Muslim civilizations in North Africa, but those that's part of the Arab world, you know, let's be honest. And, but then think about the other types of conflict, of course, then you have Serbia, Kosovo, and I think it pairs best with Armenia, Azerbaijan, because these are conflicts that it didn't, frankly, it doesn't matter what goes on, Russia, Ukraine, these conflicts would have also been going on. And they just so happen to align along very similar block lines, like Serbia and the Kosovo specifically being very much a miniature version of, of Russia and Ukraine. But these are, you know, local ethno-religious conflicts that are peripheral to the Russian world that, frankly, at this point, everyone involved in those conflicts are trying their best to not pin their local conflict to the Russia-Ukraine conflict because they see that getting hotter and hotter and not stopping as, you know, Ukraine signs laws into that we can't even begin negotiations without all Russian troops leaving the territory. Vladimir Putin can't even be the president for negotiations to begin, you know, stuff like this. 
I don't think Serbia, anyone on the sides of Serbia, Kosovo, or Armenia, Azerbaijan want to peg their cause to that cause where they're having to fight on the terms of that war, right? Obviously, Armenia has been drifting away from Russia, but again, their alliance with Iran and Iran's hatred towards Azerbaijan is always going to keep them at least half a foot in the sphere of, you know, the CSTO, the former Soviet states. And then, of course, Serbia, Kosovo, I mean, Armenia has the whole Armenian Orthodox Church apostolic, but in Serbia, Kosovo, it's even more direct because we always have the Patriarch of Serbia standing very closely with the Moscow Patriarchate on the issue of the schism, and there's other schism issues in the Balkans as well with the, and of course the Muslim issue comes into play, which has its parallels in Russia. And then when you have the actual direct kind of, I would say the closest pairing to Russia-Ukraine itself, which is a, you know, instigated by the West, conflict with an established regional nation power that, you know, has just been resisting and had enough. I think it's similar ultimately to Syria. I think the fact that Syria is still ongoing is almost a bit of a best worst case scenario. Like I'd rather see Russia, you know, not end up, you know, 10 years after the conflict starts still having to try to, I don't know, drive a NATO faction out of a portion of its territory like we still see in Syria. And of course, Syria and Ukraine kind of bring together the Turkey issue, which is such a major thing that we talk about on the show. But again, Assad is still in power. This is something that the entire collective West even invented new technology. You know, it's, I think it's widely understood that Twitter itself was invented to facilitate the Arab Spring back in 2010, 2011, which, again, the only nation where it really didn't succeed super well was Syria, and it facilitated the Syrian civil war. And we're still there now. We're still always focusing almost every episode on what's going on in Syria between Russian and Turkish proxies, U.S. proxies, ISIS, another U.S.-Israeli proxy, of course. I mean, Israel bombs Damascus every month, and it's, and of course that's one of the direct ways that Israel and Russia disagree and clash and could see their relations deteriorate, which we know has eschatological, you know, inter- you know possible uh, consequences. So I think looking at these things this way is um, very interesting. And of course, we, we talked about this in some of our early episodes about, you know, the words of St. Paisios, the words of Mishpaltin Yovitos, the words of some people that aren't. Thank you for listening to the free preview of Ether Hour, episode 15. Everybody, we assure you this conversation is just getting warmed up. About 20 minutes in, you know, we really start to get intense. We talk about some great ideas like what comes next for Russia after victory in the special military operation, the potential expansion points for a broader Russian empire, as well as potential future for the democratic situation in the U.S. as Trump's arrest, you know, and the fallout from that happens. So thank you so much. Be sure to check the link out in the description to hear the full episode on worldwarnow.substack.com. Subscribe, get access to all the backlog Ether Hour episodes, as well as the full versions of our articles, and other premium content that we put out. So thank you so much. Your support means a lot to us and makes all of this possible. So thanks so much, and God bless.